Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad. Today I am responding to a podcast that came out on April 25th called Inflation Not Dead Yet. Well, that's the episode title. The podcast is called Beyond Unprecedented, the Post-Pandemic Economy. It's put out by the Columbia Law School. And in this episode, the hosts interview Hugh Pill, the chief economist and executive director for monetary analysis and research at the Bank of England, the British Central Bank. I thought this was a really interesting interview because Hugh said a few things that really went viral. He made comments about how the goal of monetary policy is sort of to make people poorer and they need to quote unquote accept that and that people not accepting their current state is a driver of inflation. And I think that these comments made a few people quite angry. It sounds very elitist, high-handed, out of touch, but there's a lot of stuff in this podcast that's also quite interesting because I think it kind of gives you a hint. The, The mass slips a little about how the people creating monetary policy think about the world and their place in it and their relation with the people who are subject to monetary policy. I often say on the Bitcoin Dad Pod how the case for Bitcoin is best made by its opponents, by the elites who have the most to lose from a Bitcoinized world. So I'm not trying to take Hugh's comments out of context, but let's listen to what he says and I'll jump in when I think there's something interesting The hosts uh, introduced themselves, and one of them grew up in Israel and makes some interesting comments about how Israel's inflationary episode in the 80s changed behavior going forward. She essentially describes dollarization. The pegging of consumer contract prices like rent to the U.S. dollar in Israel is something that kind of originated then, but it's something you see even today. This is 40 years later. I also think hyperinflation in Israel caused a lot of financial misconduct. There were all these incidents of banks artificially inflating their stock. Um, So it was really kind of this turning point in terms of awareness of misconduct for a pretty young country at the time, Israel. I think this is interesting because in moments of financial and monetary upset, there's a lot of chaos and people respond to various incentives that that chaos creates. In Israel, this resulted in financial misconduct. There was the opportunity for financial companies to play games with their asset prices during this inflationary episode. And I believe this was also the case in Weimar, Germany, another famous hyperinflation in which the price of financial assets was incredibly volatile. They didn't all go down to zero. Some companies seem to perform very well in this environment. And there are long-term consequences because even 40 years later, Israel is partially dollarized. Important contracts are anchored to U.S. dollars. So I think that a trend we're seeing today in countries that have access to international dollars via the Eurodollar banking system is a trend towards dollarization. This doesn't mean that the dollar is a good currency. It's just better than the local currency. And that's a feature of the Eurodollar system because I like to think of all other currencies as layers on top of the dollar. They sort of settle back to the dollar. How do we get to this 2% inflation sort of rule of thumb? And why is it thought to be important? Our real goal as central bankers and monetary policymakers is to try and ensure we have price stability. To be pedantic, this is incorrect. The U.S. central bank actually has two mandates, price stability and full employment, whatever that means. And what's interesting is that when it comes to controlling inflation, full employment is the mandate that gets ignored. Because as he'll talk about, the model of the economy or the model of inflation that is popular among central bankers, the Phillips curve model, treats employment as the driver for inflation. There's also a third hidden mandate for the U.S. central bank, the U.S. Federal Reserve, which is that they need to maintain an operating U.S. Treasury market. And actually what we have seen in the past 10 years is that when financial markets, especially relating to U.S. government debt, begin to get volatile or 
act in ways that are unexpected, then the central bank steps in. That's not part of their mandate. But financial stability is closely tied to this hidden mandate that the U.S. Federal Reserve needs to make sure that the U.S. Treasury market kind of works for the government's borrowing. And of course, there's a question, what do we mean by price stability? Well, Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, he famously um, described price stability as a situation where developments in inflation don't affect the decisions that households and firms are making about investment, about spending, about where they choose to send their kids to college, whether they choose to buy a house. And the thinking behind that is, if you can ignore those things, you can focus on the decisions that are really important to you, right? How you trade off investing in a factory today via putting your cash in the bank. If everything's being distorted by inflation, then you might make wrong decisions about that. You might make misinformed decisions about those types of things. And that will interfere with the productivity growth, with the innovation, with the dynamism in the economy. I don't really have a problem with this concept of price stability. And I think that there is a sense in that a stable price level helps capital formation because it helps individuals and businesses plan for the future. If they don't know what the price of money is in the future, it's another variable that adds complexity for long-term planning. However, given that central bank monetary policy, specifically reducing interest rates from a high in the United States of around 20% in the early 1980s to effectively 0% in 2020, that blew the largest financial asset bubble in human history. And the mechanism for that bubble was that many financial valuation models base the price of risk off of the relative yield of quote-unquote safe assets. And because U.S. government debt is treated as the safe asset in these financial models, which is reasonable because it's an asset issued by the U.S. government that has the ability to print dollars, and so they will always pay back this debt theoretically because they can print the dollars, so you'll always nominally get your money back. That means this asset, in a sense, will never default. Though, of course, we know that's not the case because right now, three-month treasury debt is trading at a much higher interest rate than one-month treasury debt. Why is that? It's because the U.S. debt ceiling is interfering with the U.S. Treasury's ability to issue more debt. And since the U.S. government is in a debt spiral, it needs to issue more debt to pay for previous debt. So Hugh makes a reasonable point that price stability is probably pretty good for economic planning and whatnot. However, he completely ignores or chooses not to engage with the fact that central bank policy is incredibly distortive by raising financial assets prices to the moon via cutting interest rates over a prolonged period. And the mechanism for that increase in asset prices is sort of intuitive because pension funds, you know, investors, they need yield. The whole point of investment is to make money. And so if safe assets are yielding 2% or 0%, effectively under the rate of inflation, then you need to find yield somewhere. And that means moving out on the curve of risk into higher risk assets that compensate you for that risk. And in the past 10 years, that's been private equity, that's been tech stocks, and those assets have performed very well as money has sort of been squeezed out of safer assets and into these more speculative assets. Now, of course, then it comes down to the question, if you want price stability, why focus on one specific number, 2%? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, we're just trying to be transparent. We're trying to explain what we're doing in a measurable way. And what that helps us be is also accountable. So it's very important for us to be clear about what we're trying to achieve. And then if we don't achieve it, people can complain and hold us to account. And you know, in the end, they can get us to change course if necessary. We're trying to provide an I'm sorry, this is just incredibly cynical. There is no accountability for central bankers. They're not democratically elected, they are selected via appointment, a non-democratic process. And there's never been a trial for a central banker after their term is over for mismanaging the economy. 
So there is absolutely no accountability for the people in charge of monetary policy. For example, does anyone remember eight months ago when Jerome Powell and central bankers around the world were saying that they were so successful with their post-COVID policies that the market was just overheating and, and doing so well, yet there are signs of recession everywhere. There are signs of deflationary money as asset prices reduce and the inversion of yield curves in quote-unquote safe assets like government debt suggests that investors and institutions are hedging. They're basically buying safe assets to protect themselves from some sort of negative economic event that they perceive happening in the future. Well, you can, if you if you keep track, you'll hear that first Jerome says there's going to be a no landing, the economy's great, then they start talking about a soft landing, we've got this, then suddenly they're saying, okay, there might be a mild recession, but it's going to be mild. Yeah, you know, it's just this constant shifting narrative. And because the economy is complicated, no one really understands it too well, they're able to avoid responsibility by obfuscating what they're doing behind complexity and jargon. And there is absolutely no accountability in this system. The only accountability in a pseudo-capitalist market system is whether you made money or lost money. But because central banks can print money, you know, they clearly can't be measured on this metric. They're not supposed to make money. So measuring their performance is relatively challenging. I would say that if we look at what Jay Powell and the Federal Open Market Committee has said in their notes versus what then transpired and see what their estimates for the future are versus what actually happened, we can see that the individual's in charge of monetary policy have a very poor track record of forecasting the future state of the economy, which is necessary for them to do their job. Yet, I don't hear any criticism from the mainstream about this mismanagement. And certainly no solution. Maybe someone might complain or maybe a media figure might complain, oh, monetary policy is hurting regular people. How come they're doing this? But they have no alternative. And I think that's why Bitcoin and this alternative financial ecosystem that's growing around it is so powerful and subversive. Anchor for expectations in the economy and expectations in financial markets. So, you know, most financial instruments will be priced at least partly depending on what the outlook for inflation is. Um, And if we can anchor inflation credibly at 2%, then that gives them something to anchor on and and, and manage uh, developments and price assets in the financial sector more effectively. There's nothing really magic about 2%. Would it make a massive difference if it was 2.5% or 3% or 1.5%? I think probably the answer to that is no. You want to put grease into the wheels of the market by having a little bit of inflation that allows all prices to change. The 2% inflation target actually comes from an off-the-cuff mark by a New Zealand central bank official. I believe I've also read articles that suggested that it was the Australian central bank who had a marketing campaign marketing 2% as an ideal inflation target. It's essentially completely unscientific. There's no research that suggests 2% is a desirable target for inflation. And I almost wanted to say before, I I kind of missed this, There's, there's a lot to get into. Inflation targeting is sort of an odd activity. Uh, There's been observations in the past that once you make something a target, it loses all meaning because now there's every incentive to to sort of game it. And I, I stand by that. I don't think that inflation targeting is a good idea. You know, it creates all this focus on what's the inflation rate when actually inflation is relatively difficult to measure. Central banks don't even attempt to measure monetary inflation because they don't have visibility into the euro dollar financial system. So it's really a distraction in that sense. But I think the bit at the end where Hugh says that, you know, we want a little bit of inflation, but not too much. What's he getting at? Why do you want this little bit of inflation? Well, I'll tell you a little bit of inflation is a very effective transfer mechanism from value from working people to companies. A little bit of inflation devalues workers' wages in real terms every year, and it transfers that value to the company that's effectively paying them less over time. And 
over the past 40 years, since inflation has been, you know, by mainstream accounts, relatively low, but interest rates have fallen, there has been a massive movement of wealth upwards in society. Most countries in the world have become more unequal over this 40-year period than the previous 20 or 40-year period. And is inflation targeting part of that? Maybe. I think there's a lot of tax law and other policy, sort of neoliberal economic policy that is very business and elite focused. It sort of gives workers the shaft. But there's an insight here that Hugh and the class of people and business that he represents, they favor a little bit of inflation. Now the host is asking Hugh about the current inflationary episode and if we're moving towards a higher base rate of inflation. We are very focused, I think, in the central banking community, in the monetary policy community, on the persistent component of inflation. The reason for that, as a starting point, is that that chain, that transmission mechanism of what we do by setting rates, how long it takes that to feed through into having an influence on inflation, working through the banking sector, then having Talia go to the bank, get her mortgage, buy her house and change her spending decision. That chain of transmission, it comes with quite long lags. So when we move bank rate or the Fed moves the Fed funds rate, that probably has its biggest effect on inflation in the UK or US, respectively, in about 18 months' time. If the result of central bank policy is felt 18 months after the policy is made, then why doesn't the Fed or the Bank of England make a move, wait 18 months, and then make another move? The fact that there's an acknowledgement, which is not unique to the Bank of England, that monetary policy acts with a lag, but the Fed and other central banks are obsessed with the short-term news cycle. And the Fed is currently on this cadence of raising the Fed funds rate, raising this sort of quote-unquote central interest rate every month to demonstrate their credibility in fighting inflation, when by their own logic, by the logic of monetary policy, they have no idea what the effects will be to these actions until 18 months later. I just don't understand how this is seen as responsible, competent, professional, when they admit that they have no idea what they're doing in the short term, and they'll only see the effects in 18 months. It suggests that, to me, maybe central banks are actually doing something other than actual monetary policy setting. Maybe their real activity today is this short-term media tour, is jawboning, is sort of influencing markets and consumer behavior through statements like this, through media pronouncements. Okay, let's continue. If some disturbance hits the economy today and it feeds through to inflation tomorrow, if we changed interest rates today, as soon as we saw that disturbance, we'd be having an influence of inflation in 18 months' time, much too late to offset the sort of impact effect. So that has two implications. One is there will be some volatility in inflation around this 2% target, which is just unavoidable, and we kind of have to suck it up. But also, when we're trying to set our policy rates, we have to make forecasts, basically, to ensure that and we begin to have that impact on inflation at that 12-month to 18-month horizon, that is, we have the right impact at that point. So key question for us then is, well, what's causing that persistence? Because inflation has been you know, higher than we expected. It's been higher than we expected for longer, and it's undesirably long time. So inflation started to go up about 18 months ago. We don't have that excuse now so easily that you know, we just couldn't get, even if we'd acted immediately, we couldn't get it to effect because of these lags. The technology available for monetary policymakers was, was too slow moving. One story is there's been a set of shocks. If you read Lemony Snicket, it's, you know, it's this series of unfortunate events that have just all gone in the same direction. Not to harp on the laughable nature of the concept of central bank transparency and taking responsibility for policy, but he was saying nobody could have seen this coming, when actually I don't think it is very hard to see that pushing demand into a tight global trade environment that was locked down to COVID would have had sort of an inflationary impulse. That's, I don't think that would surprise anybody, at least on, on prices for consumer goods. So I, I don't really, I don't really know what to say. I just think this is preposterous that, you know, individuals like you, who has taught at Harvard Business School, has this incredible elite economic pedigree, you know, there, there's no desire to take responsibility for 
for ineffective policy. The moment things go against them, they're like, who could have seen this coming? No one, no one could have known. Right. And so how unlucky can you be? The pandemic simultaneously both disturbed supply in the economy. We know all those stories about ships being stuck in Shanghai, not being able to bring things to Long Beach. And so therefore, there were fewer iPhones just at the time when the government was giving those stimmy checks to American households. So American households were flush with cash. They all wanted to buy the new Xbox in order to play at home because they couldn't go to work or go to the restaurant or go to the bar. That led to more demand, not enough supply, prices go up, that's inflationary. I just feel like this is such a elite sort of dismissive narrative. I'm hearing Hugh blaming inflation on essentially poor people who received stimulus assistance checks from the government, when actually the Paycheck Protection Program, which was essentially a gift of money to any corporation that could demonstrate that they employed people, was many times larger than than these so-called stimmy checks. Well, why aren't we talking about that, Hugh? And I think the answer is because there is a contempt for the common person by people like you and policymakers who view themselves as part of a social elite. There's a class dynamic here. And it's just so dismissive of regular people to say that their desire for an Xbox caused inflation. There was serious difficulty for people, for regular workers during the pandemic, whose livelihoods were completely disrupted and who are still not recovered. Because guess what? Wages have fallen in real terms due to increases in prices since these stimmy checks, I'm air quoting here, were sent out. But just as that story was beginning to turn over, pandemic was receding, we then saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Russian government turned off the tap on natural gas supplies from Siberia and from Russia into Western Europe. And and what's the consequence of that is, well, wholesale European gas prices, from when I started working at the bank in the autumn of 2021, to their peak in August last year, they rose about 12 times. I mean, that's more than a thousand percent. Another issue with central bank policy that has blown giant asset bubbles for the last, well, really 20 years, is that it has led to malinvestment. So if price stability, the the real goal of price stability is to prevent malinvestment. Well, malinvestment happened as a result of central bank policy, specifically lowering interest rates consistency over a long period. And money was piled into non-productive activities like Uber or DoorDash or or whatnot, a lot of technology companies that have since disappeared or their value has dropped precipitously. And there also was a large investment in renewable resources, especially in Europe. And those renewable investments, they were not really market driven. They needed tax subsidies to be undertaken because these energy sources were not cost effective. You know, Whatever the alternative was, natural gas or nuclear, was a, I think, in my view, based on my research, better alternatives. And so what I'm getting at is that the financial environment, the speculative environment created over the past 40 years and accelerated in the past 20 years due to this reckless, inept, blowing financial bubbles policy from central banks resulted in misallocations of capital that have created the situation that leads to this energy crisis. You could actually see it coming because divorcing financial reality from physical reality, which is you know kind of the goal of managing the physical world through arbitrarily changing the price of money in a room with eight old men and women deciding what the price of money in the future is going to be, this is not really connected to reality. And it has resulted in misallocations of capital. Clearly, Europe needs to invest in some other energy resources, probably nuclear. And the same has happened in the US. There's this term greedflation. You know, how is inflation so high if corporate profits are also high? Well, guess what? The financial environment of the past 40 years has resulted in the centralization of companies. Where are all the small and medium-sized companies? They've disappeared due to these policies. And even though gas or energy or uh, fuel and utility bills is a relatively small proportion of spending in the UK, say it's about five or six percent. You know, you just do the arithmetic. Something goes up a thousand percent and you multiply it by way to five percent, you're still getting a massive contribution to inflation of five or six percentage points. And that's moving us from our two percent target close to double digits. And that's exactly what happened. But then over the last few months, gas prices have come off, right? So, you know, that's working in our favor. But what's happened then? 
you know, we've seen rises in food prices. Now, part of that was avian flu. Part of that was we saw crop failures in Southern Europe and North Africa. So all the avocados became super expensive. We didn't have any eggs, all that type of stuff. We've had a series of inflation shocks that have just come one after the other. Each of those shocks was in itself transitory, but they just were timed in a way that inflation never dissipated. Now, that's a pretty convenient story for a central banker to tell. And that is a story we tell, but maybe it's not the whole truth, right? And so, you know, there are two parts to that. One part might be, could we have anticipated some of these shocks? And I think there is good economic research, for example, looking at supply chains, that if we had understood supply chains better than we did, we could have probably understood that this was going to be a more difficult process than we anticipated. The crucial thing is, is that the behavior of price setters, wage setters, in the UK economy, in the US economy, will change. When your energy bill you get every month at your house goes up four or five times, that's eating into your income. What's the natural thing to do? Well, the natural thing to do is say, I need to be paid more. If you're a household, work at a household, what's the natural thing to do if you're a restaurant? The natural thing to do is say, I need to raise the prices of you know, my meals in order to compensate the fact my gas bill is now higher. It's almost like Hugh doesn't respect the economic process, the way that huge numbers of people respond to these marginal prices and change their behavior. He's not saying we really need to invest in more energy infrastructure to lower prices of energy long term. He's saying, gosh, would people just stop optimizing already for their current environment? Because it makes my job harder. You know, there's this out of touch quality. I keep on saying that there's a class element here. And I really think there is. I think that, you know, somehow the sense of hierarchy, the sense of, you know, managing things from above is corrupting. And it results in this twisted view that ends in contempt. But then, of course, that process is ultimately self-defeating. In the end, the UK, which is a big net importer of natural gas, is facing a situation that the price of what you're buying from the rest of the world has gone up a lot relative to the price of what you're selling to the rest of the world, which is mainly services in the case of the UK. And so that means you don't need to be much of an economist to realize if what you're buying has gone up a lot relative to what you're selling, you're going to be worse off. So somehow in the UK, someone needs to accept that they're worse off and stop trying to maintain their real spending power by bidding up prices, whether higher wages or passing the energy costs through onto customers, etc. This is the quote that went viral. Hugh telling consumers, but I think also businesses too, that they need to accept that they're worse off. And that's clearly a really wrong way to think about an economy. No one's going to change their behavior because you've made this high-level observation. Rather, I think the right thing to say here is that the tools available for central banks who administer monetary policy are actually quite limited. They're not all-powerful. And huge international structural problems of energy, of money, can't actually be handled very well. So why isn't he admitting that? And I think the answer is that part of the strategy of modern central banks is to create this mystique of power and to make sure that you kind of always know that the market's already turning in the direction that you want it or that you think it's going to before you kind of do the policy. They never try and do policy if they're not sure it's going to work. So they follow the market, I think, is an argument that Jeff Schneider makes a lot. But listening to Hugh, you can hear that there's not a lot of humility here. I and what we're facing now is that that reluctance to accept that, yes, we're all worse off and we all have to take our share, to try and pass that cost onto one of our compatriots and saying, we'll be all right, but they will have to take our share too. That pass the parcel game that's going on here, that game is one that is just generating inflation. And that part of inflation can persist. How much bargaining power, how much pricing power exists for different actors in the value chain on the corporate side or in the labor market. And at the moment, the relatively low level of unemployment, the strength of corporate pricing power and so forth in the UK and the US, I think they're all running a little bit too strong. And so that's why interest rates have gone up. That's trying to cool demand in the economy down. And that's ultimately trying to ensure that, that process, if you like, a pass the parcel is consistent with the 2% you mentioned earlier. 
Do you see right here where he blames inflation on the common person, where he suggests that employment or tight labor markets, full employment is the problem? He touches on, I think, maybe corporate consolidation or pricing power. You know, as I said before, I think that the centralization of business into ever larger corporations does have a lot to do with monetary policy because companies that could offer corporate debt, who could print bonds to fund their operations, because this debt had a slightly higher yield than safe government debt, if they were a quote-unquote legitimate corporation, or at least an okay one, they had this ability to borrow infinitely over the past 10 years. And that meant that they could effectively outspend smaller competitors, which resulted in this more centralized economy of larger actors with more pricing power. So the Fed and other central banks, they participated in a long process that centralized economic power. And now when inflation strikes, there's no admission of their role in creating this economic backdrop. Since March 2022, the Fed has raised rates from near zero to a target range between 4.75 and 5%. Similarly, the Bank of England has increased the key rate from 0.1% to 4.25% since December 2021. What are the limits and the potential hazards of using this tool aggressively? What do you look at to know when interest rates have hit the right level, particularly in light of what you said about the delayed impact of increasing rates? I think you're right to point out that a lot of what I've said is in the face of high inflation, we need to tighten policy and that's the process we've been in. So we need to make sure policy is tight enough to weigh enough on demand that that whole process of bargaining, that level of demand in the economy, results in inflation that's a target. But, of course, if you need to do enough, the danger always exists that you do too much. And if you do too much, what happens? When you weaken demand excessively, you might cause a recession. Most things in life are about trying to find that balance, not too much, not too little, but just right. This is the kind of Goldilocks uh, story. We need to be looking forward exactly to calibrate our policy decisions to have the right impact when those lags in transmission unwind. But as I think Yogi Berra, who probably someone Eric knows better than me, but I believe is sort of a baseball uh, philosopher combination. Um, but I think he famously said something like, you know, it's hard to make forecasts, especially about the future. And I think that really gets down to a lot of what practically on a day-to-day basis we are trying to do. That is basically the process we go through here at the Bank of England every six weeks when we have these monetary policy committee meetings. And in making those forecasts, we're looking at all the available information we have. So there's lots of economic data. Um, so, you know, we look at GDP, we look at measures of inflation itself, we look at wage developments, we look at different components of all those things. We look at consumption, investment, exports, imports, exchange rate, asset prices. Increasingly, we also try and look at more exotic data and use more exotic techniques like AI techniques and so forth, because there is a lot of information out there um, that probably isn't being captured uh, as effectively as we may like. You know, it's very much on our agenda to move in that direction. Would it be? Well, that's terrifying because they're all already doing such a bad job with no oversight. So add a little AI with an unexplainable model driving your decisions. I mean, you can blame it on the model even more effectively. You notice how he was sort of defaulting to folksy Yogi Berra quotes. The rest of the interview has a lot of that. I think it kind of speaks to the mediocrity and BS of these monetary policy elites. At the end of the day, there's very little academic basis for their worldview. In particular, I just wanted to mention the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve is an academically disproven theory that Hugh has hinted at when he talks about tight labor markets driving inflation. And it's this theory that there is a strong relationship between a tight labor market and inflation. And the idea is that essentially employers are bidding up the price of labor. They don't have enough workers, so they're bidding up wages. And, you know, this is just ultimately self-defeating because it means prices across the economy will rise. And even workers who get higher wages, well, you know, they are just going to pay higher prices, so why can't they accept that they're just poor and be happy with their previous wage? It's an incredibly elitist view, if you really break it down, and it's been effectively debunked. In the 1970s, there was very high employment and very high inflation. 
You know, it's not a strong relationship, but it's convenient because monetary policy is set by financial elites who then work in the financial institutions that they regulate. And if inflation is this big issue that we're all going to focus on and we blame it on greedy workers, well, it's very convenient for the people administering this policy and the economy and reaping most of the benefits of the last 40 years of monetary policy. Transformative to monetary policy, I'm not sure. I think monetary policy is a pretty old-fashioned kind of game. It's a pretty slow-moving kind of game. We shouldn't be at the bleeding, cutting edge of technology just for the sake of it. We, we are famously a conservative bunch in the central banking world. But I think you know, we do need to move in the direction of using new data techniques and new data sources, and this is definitely what we're seeking to do. Talking about Yogi Berra, one of his uh, famous quips was uh, about inflation. He was said to say, uh, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. So <laughs> I want to kind of push you a little bit more on like which direction, how much, how far is too much, how fast is too fast or too slow. We had been lulled into this kind of expectation that inflation was almost permanently 2% or even close to zero. And it moved incredibly quickly and incredibly violently, as did interest rates um, because of concern about the inflationary pressures. And, and that's placed a lot of strain on the banking industry on both sides of the Atlantic. So a poster child in the U.S. is the now defunct Silicon Valley Bank. And they threw a bunch of their, their assets, right, while they were waiting for people to take deposits into government bonds and agency-backed bonds. Default risk is super low, but if there's a sudden increase in interest rates, the value of these things can fall precipitously. And that's effectively what happened. And as some of their clients, you know, because VC industry was also slowing down, started to pull money out, they had to start taking write downs on their assets. And that essentially caused a big collective freakout. Signature Bank about the same time failed. A third, First Republic, had to be bailed out by a group of largely U.S.-based banks. Uh, it, it soon spread overseas and Swiss regulators, you know, hammered out a kind of a shotgun uh, marriage acquisition of uh, Credit Suisse into another big Swiss bank, UBS. I guess the concern is that these examples aren't completely aberrational. I kind of feel for the tension of a central banker here, right, trying to say we've got to take aggressive moves to slow down the economy. But then, you know, a, a quick change in interest rates can cause some of these uh, financial institutions to kind of end up upside down. And so when you're trying to make your own decisions on the if and how fast questions on rate changes, uh, how do you think about like the general fragility in the financial system, uh, you know, sort of writ large and going forward? I think the Fed waited to move rates a bit longer than we did at the Bank of England, but then moved them faster. And there were those who say... We should have gone quicker here in the UK, more similarly to the Fed, we should have moved earlier. So there will always be a debate, I think, about too far, too fast, too slow, too little. Central banks are responsible for monetary policy, and that's kind of my main job here at the Bank of England. But we're also responsible for supervising banks in large many respects, and also responsible for financial stability. And, and all these things are naturally complementary to each other. When we move interest rates, I mean, a key thing then is the financial system has to work. If the financial system is in panic, if the financial system is in, is in stress, that transmission of policy will be disrupted and then we will not be able to achieve our monetary policy goals, uh, let alone our financial stability goals. The UK has not been immune to the similar events. So last autumn, um, maybe triggered by changes of government in the UK and different fiscal choices in the UK, fiscal policy, tax and spending policies by the government, we also had our sort of financial aberration and, you know, that led to a lot of pain. And that was actually in the non-bank sector. So lots of different jurisdictions have faced these problems. And I think you're right. They all fundamentally reflect the fact that we've been in a world where the expectation was interest rates were low and would stay low because we had conquered the inflation problem. Some context here. There isn't a really good academic model for inflation. And so the quote unquote relatively low inflation of the past 40 years in the developed world has been attributed to many things, you know, technology, increasing productivity. I think that what we're seeing is that actually this quote unquote low inflation was due to the fact that inflation wasn't showing up in consumer goods prices that make up the CPI index as much because a lot of technology in the past 40 years was developed to actually reduce the quality of goods. 
many goods are actually less well built intentionally to make them cheaper. Think, for instance, of uh, saw blades, you know, circular saw blades. It used to be a single piece of steel. Now it's a, uh, instead of a big piece of high quality steel, it's a thin band of the, the edges, which are sort of higher quality steel and like a thin steel. Uh, sort of a cheaper metal as the inside of the circle, and that's most of the mass, so it's a cheaper product, saves a couple pennies. But, you know, now if you're messing around with a circular saw, sometimes the blades uh, jump off and will, you know, shoot at you like a metal laser. So it's kind of a metaphor for uh, technology that actually reduces the quality and cost of goods. Another aspect of the last 40 years is that if we include the massive increases in asset prices that have accompanied interest rates falling from, again, in the early 1980s, a high of around 20% to now around 0% in, uh, two years ago, and now they're increasing again. Well, is financial asset price appreciation a form of inflation? I would say yes, because there is monetary creation in certain places in the financial system. It's not like all of these assets got better. It's not like houses got so much better. It's just that because there are practices of securitizing houses and creating mortgages to buy houses, money is credit. So if you can create credit to buy an asset, you're creating money that then goes into that asset. There is money creation in these assets that have inflated. And this is a broad point. I'm not specifically criticizing Hugh here, but there's just so much more to this story. So, you know, what are we doing? Well, I think central bankers from the monetary policy side we like to be predictable. We like to move gradually. We don't want to shock people, right? This is categorically untrue. The rate hikes under the Powell FOMC have been the fastest in history. Kuroda at the Bank of Japan would famously signal one thing to the market and do another to shock markets to create an impact. Central bank policy is actually, in many respects, quite reckless and experimental, not this predictable, safe thing that Hugh is trying. So to some extent, the reason why you know, we didn't just move interest rates from 0.1% to above 4% in one leap, is that we were trying to manage some of these risks. We were trying to prepare the ground. We were trying to signal to people that this is going to be a process. We have to raise interest rates because inflation is there. We need to tighten policy. But we're going to do it in a gradual, persistent, and kind of resolute way. So that's been the sort of language that I have emphasized. But what exactly is the mechanism to lower inflation by raising interest rates? I believe the process he was hinting at is that if the cost of borrowing for businesses increases, businesses will be able will not be able to make as many investments in the future. They will therefore plan to hire fewer workers or maybe even reduce their headcounts, which will increase unemployment. As unemployment increases, wages in general will stay flat and inflation will reduce wages in real terms. So eventually you get to a point where wages are relatively low again, and now firms will feel empowered to hire people because their wages have lowered so much due to these. Um, it's interesting that people now are more on that side. There was a long time where they were saying, you're being too slow, right? Inflation has gone up to double digits in the UK. You need to be raising rates faster. And I think recent events have a bit moderated that. But one crucial thing is that what we're going through in, in what you described is really the first test of the new kind of post-global financial crisis regime. And that's a regime which says we use regulatory measures and sort of so-called macroprudential measures to try and maintain stability in the financial system. And what we are doing on the monetary policy side is relying on the fact that our colleagues in the other side of the bank are doing their job, looking at the banks, stress testing the banks, so forcing the banks to go through scenarios, what would happen if interest rates go up, what would happen if bond prices fall. We do have a certain degree of confidence that within the banking system, the core financial system, that there is a robustness and resilience there. But what we're not doing is somehow saying, oh my God, there's such a problem in the financial sector that we need to be distracted from our objective of price stability, getting inflation back to 2%. And, and I think that's the real test of the system. This is interesting. And I think that it kind of points to how whenever there is a crisis, the Fed says, 
oh, we need a new tool. We have to do a new thing. This is one of the clues that central bankers sort of don't know what's going on or, or can't control the situation, or maybe the institution itself is just kind of not fit for purpose, is that they're constantly inventing new facilities, the BTFP or whatever it's called that was invented after the Silicon Valley bank failure is an example of just inventing things out of thin air, these alphabet soup programs. This is not specifically what Hugh is talking about. He's sort of describing central banks' jobs as banking regulators, creating regulations that change bank behavior to make them more safe or stable. And this is really problematic because over the past 20 years, how many new banks have been opened? And I believe the answer is very close to zero because these regulations, they're backward looking. And they've had the effect of essentially freezing the status quo, of sort of freezing the banks that exist today, and smaller banks get bought and merged with larger banks, ever-increasing, ever-larger banks, which are really not fit for purpose, to abuse that term, for lending to smaller and medium-sized businesses. We're getting this centralization of banking and finance just the same way that these policies have centralized the real economy into mega corporations that are huge employers, huge lobbyists, and who have all of this power in both setting the price of labor markets, also setting the price of goods because they've eaten up all their competitors. So there's a huge cost to these sort of this regulatory approach to banking, finance, policy. Policy. And obviously, Hugh doesn't see it at all, doesn't care, because you have to remember that from his perspective, things are great. He's the head of research at the Bank of England. His life is amazing, right? You know, he loves this world. He doesn't see a problem with the way things are going. Silicon Valley Bank famously was uh, pulled out from the stress testing uh, uh, rubric uh, within the U.S. And even if they stayed in, I think the basic stress test that the Fed was using for uh, 2022 didn't plug in an inflationary scenario. It was it was other sorts of scenarios. I'm 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 guessing that we're going to have certainly in the U.S. and maybe in the U.K. as well more of a fulsome kind of uh, reassessment of all the different scenarios that are kind of necessary for stress testing. So I think that's right. In the U.K., we we have really submitted pretty much all banks to what in the jargon is you know a test of interest rate risk in the banking book. So that has been something that, you know, not just the banks that were international banks that are subject to international sets of regulation, which requires that, but all banks had to do that. But, you know, to your point, I mean, certainly there's a whole set of issues here in the UK. It's as much focused on the non-bank financial sector, the hedge fund world, the pension fund world, the money market world, etc. Um, I mean, it, to try and think about well, what are the plausible scenarios? So a stress test that look very extreme, a sort of 10 sigma, 20 sigma event of rates going up 400 basis points uh, in a year. I mean, suddenly that's reality. So what does stress mean in a world where you've seen that happen? We hope that we've broken the back of the inflation process. We're always going to be hit by some shocks. And so our nimbleness and sort of resilience to those types of shocks is really the core thing. And that applies on the monetary policy side and applies on the financial stability side. If you've read Nassim Taleb's work on risk modeling and finance, you'll know that when models of risk are constructed, certain assumptions are made. And the main assumption is that risk is normally distributed. Hugh Pill just said Six Sigma event. That's an event that on a bell curve, where the fat part of the curve is events that normally happen, and then those thin parts that trend towards zero very sharply, Six Sigma lives in that very thin part of the curve that's very unlikely on either side of the median. I don't know if you can visualize that. It kind of looks like a big uh, sort of um, the end of a bullet, kind of. Now, Nassim Taleb's observation as a trader, and I think this is a good observation, even though Taleb is a goofy guy and got involved with Bitcoin Cash and canceled himself from Bitcoin, is that risk is actually not normally distributed. The risk curve doesn't look like this clean curve, like a, like a dome. It actually looks like a line with a little lump in the middle. And this, is, you know, it's called a fat-tailed distribution. It means that the extreme events are actually very likely or, or much more likely than a normal distribution. This might seem like kind of an arcane point, but the way Hugh talks, you can tell that risk is a normal distribution in his mind or in his shorthand. 
And that's a real problem because risk is pretty clearly not normally distributed. What are the odds of having a financial cataclysm in 2008 and then having another financial cataclysm in March of 2020? We were supposed to have fixed these problems. I mean, the dot-com bust in the early 2000s, it was not a big deal. Maybe the savings and loans crisis in the 1980s was sort of a, a big financial shock. There was Black Friday, but there was nothing like the 2008 crisis and then the COVID crisis. Their only modern corollary was the Great Depression, and that was 100 years previously. So is the rate of financial catastrophe accelerating? Yeah, probably. But also, clearly, this is not normally distributed risk. The tail-end events, the extreme events are much more likely than a normal distribution would suggest. Why is that a problem? Because Hugh is talking about, he's the head of research at the Bank of England, and he thinks risk is normally distributed. His model of the world is wrong. Everything he does is very likely to be wrong because of these sort of simplistic, hubristic assumptions that are necessary for econometric modeling to work. The tools of modern economics are simply unsuited for reality. It's not a science. It's not the dismal science. It's the dismal social science. It's philosophy. It's not mathematics. It's not physics. And these philosophers are supposed to be managing our world via monetary policy. That's very scary when you think about it. Let's talk about one aspect of the relationship between high inflation and consumer behavior. Buy now, pay later products. These are short-term loans that allow consumers to pay for purchases in installments with no interest, low if any fees, and fast credit approvals. And during the pandemic, Buy Now, Pay Later grew in popularity, especially among Gen Z, as we would say borrowers. And as costs of living have increased, many consumers have turned to Buy Now, Pay Later to manage their everyday expenses from groceries to gas. But with rising inflation, we've also seen increased delinquency on Buy Now, Pay Later loans. So according to the Fed, 18% of consumers between ages of 18 and 29 fell behind on their Buy Now, Pay Later payments into 2021. Um, and so you started our discussion by talking about how the goal of price stability is that inflation itself does not affect consumer decisions. But perhaps the problem here, to some extent, is that inflation is not impacting consumer spending enough and credit is being used to kind of bridge the gap. So what's your take on the dynamic between inflationary pressure and the rise in buy now, pay later and the reliance of consumers uh, on credit more generally? Fundamentally, what's going to drive prices up? in aggregate, in individual uh, uh, parts of the economy. It's when demand grows strongly relative to the availability of the goods people want to buy. So I certainly agree with you that the availability of easy credit and these buy now, pay later type schemes is one aspect of that. But you know there are lots of other aspects of easy credit that are out there. Availability of easy credit may be on terms that are not being as closely influenced by regulators and or by the monetary policy decisions of the central bank. Some of these buy now, pay later are using innovative credit scoring schemes and that type of thing. We definitely want to embrace innovation because innovation is one of the things that will drive better allocation of resources, that productivity, dynamism and, um, and better living standards. But we want that innovation to take place within the environment that doesn't generate excessive risk. In the lead up to the global financial crisis, um, we saw quite a lot of financial innovation. Some of it was very positive, but some of it was misdirected. And it led to an overextension of credit, which then transmitted to the system and really had a big cost on the global economy and the US economy. Um, and what I think we need to make sure is, is that when we have these innovations on the financial sector side, that we ensure that that safety is there, that good regulation is there, that allows the type of innovation to take place in a productive way. This is kind of a doozy. So the question is, well, central bank policy is intentionally crushing everyday people who have been driven to the margin of their lifestyle by the low growth environment of the economic unopportunity or unequal opportunity created by the world of your bank's monetary policy over the past 40 years. So you've managed to push people to the edge, but they're just using credit. Oh, it's, it's still money creation if there's credit. That'll stimulate inflation. What should we do? So I just want to look at this perspective. It's this sort of external, inhuman 
kind of idealized perspective on economic activity. I I find it unproductive and unrealistic and completely out of touch with the goal of human economic activity, which is sustainable human flourishing. So, you know, that perspective sort of gets me from the get-go. But then when he talks about innovation, this is really interesting. There's an excellent book on the history of financial panics called Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor. And Edward Chancellor observes that every financial bubble is accompanied often by a new financial innovation. And so he comes up with the shorthand rule that innovation is great except in finance. And I tend to agree. And again, you know, this sort of speaks to how little Hugh and the establishment he represents understand true innovation. Innovation is disruptive. You can't innovate from within a system. You're definitionally accepting the status quo constraints and political realities of the place you come from. Innovation comes from someone who's a little bit outside. And so this concept of managed innovation is poppycock. That feels like a word you might say. Okay, Hugh, I want to ask you one last aphorism from our baseball prophet poet Yogi Berra, who once said, you can observe a lot just by watching. So in the coming months, what are you going to be watching to more assess what the inflationary outlook is going to be like in the next 12 to 18 months? And and what sort of measures will you be looking at to try to figure out when the Bank of England has done enough to cool down the inflationary pressures sufficiently? So for for me, the absolute key thing is to keep this focus on the persistent sort of underlying component of inflation. So in the UK context, and this is true to some extent in the US too, we've seen natural gas prices rise 11, 12 times. We've seen them then fall, you know, back not far off where they started. That's going to create a lot of movement in headline inflation. We may actually see headline inflation go below our 2% target uh, over the next uh, couple of years. But the kind of key thing is, is that there's not much we can do about that, Um, precisely because this is all being driven by things that have already happened. We're very focused on this process of what's that part of inflation that's going to persist beyond that 18-month, two-year horizon. It is about how much... Uh, we see wage growth in the UK economy uh, push to try and reclaim what's been lost in terms of real spending power on the part of households. So correct me if I'm wrong. What I am hearing is Hugh saying that I represent an institution with explicit policy goals of making most households under my purview horror. I'm sorry, is this a civil servant? This seems like a goal that's incompatible with public service. Frankly, I think it's shocking. And then by the same token, how much there's pressure on the corporate side to try and push up profit margins. That might seem like a simple thing to measure, but you know, it turns out there are lots of different measures and, and, and lots of d- different idiosyncrasies about how we do that. On the labor market side, that's about the level of unemployment, how tight is the labor market. On the corporate side, it's about the level of demand, it's about the stresses in value change and so forth. Um, one indicator that in the UK we think is quite telling is services price inflation because that's something which is kind of being driven more by developments in the UK. We're focused on what's going on domestically, and domestic core inflation is is really key there. But what's key in all of that is that we can't just look at one or two individual indicators and say this tells us everything. We want to convince people, yes, we're going to get back to 2%. We're going to look at everything. I've highlighted a couple of things we think are important, but they're important insofar as they inform our story about whether inflation is going to be more persistent or not. So it's, it's always going to be, know what you Well, this was mostly incoherent. At the same time, I'm very sympathetic to sort of brain fog at the end of a long discussion. Chris and I experienced that in our weekly podcast. Hugh was referring back to this Phillips curve model, this idea that Inflation is anchored in wages, and basically the dirty poor, they should stop asking for wage increases because it's just going to raise the price of all their goods anyway, shouldn't they know their place? It's this, in my view, very kind of classist approach to economic thinking. And this is sort of my key criticism of Hugh. It feels like everything he believes and expresses is very convenient for him. It's not the fault of the Bank of England that they blew up the bond market. That was external forces. He talks about transparency and accountability. 
I think it's quite clear from his discourse that he avoids all accountability, doesn't welcome it at all. And at the core of this perspective is this sense that he was not one of the people subjected to the policy that he espouses. I think that might be the key here. To go back to Nassim Taleb, skin in the game is important. If you are exposed to the consequences of your actions, you will tend to act in a way that protects you from those consequences. But Hugh and the central banking establishment that he's sort of unofficially speaking for right now are inured to the consequences of their policy because they have access to better financial options, better types of money, better strategies. So this is kind of a fundamental problem with the hierarchical model of running our economy that we're observing here. Obviously, Bitcoin fixes this. Okay, the rest of the interview is just the wrap-up and his credentials and stuff, so it's not, it's not too interesting. Uh, let me know via Boost what you think of this reaction. I've never really done it. As you probably know, if you listen to the pod, I'm super judgy of influencers who are just sort of constantly generating content and reacting to things as sort of a low-effort way to do that. I hope this doesn't feel low effort. I certainly spent some time on this. But I mean, there are things that I like to react to because I feel that the argument for Bitcoin is really best made by its critics. It's best exemplified why we need Bitcoin by the purported leaders of our current monetary status quo. I think when they let the mass slip a little and kind of give you a hint of their true attitudes, you might not want to be subject to their policy. And Bitcoin gives you a way to opt in to a completely transparent and immutable monetary policy. No more, no less. Well, more. It's a payment system too, lightning, it's programmable. The sky's the limit, right? But in legacy finance, you get Hugh. Thanks for listening. This was the Bitcoin Dad commenting on Hugh Pill's interview on the Something Something Columbia podcast. This is reproduced without any sort of permission. So if you've got a problem with me using this audio, send me a boost and I'll think about taking it down. See you next time.